On this episode of the According to Sources podcast, September 19th, 2018, shares of Tilray hit $300, marking the top for most cannabis stocks. So where do we go from here one year later? I'm once again joined by Sean Stiefel of Navy Capital for a full discussion of this theme, the stocks to own, the stocks to avoid, and what, if anything, will cause this controversial group to break out. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital, and this is According to Sources for the week of September 22nd, 2019. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Some breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. Before we begin, it's been about a year since we did the last interview. And at that time, cannabis was sort of in this euphoria and Tilray was on its way to 300. And now the, the, the environment looks different, but just give me an update on how Navy's been doing, what's the performance been, and what's the assets under management as of today? Sure. So we finished 2018 up about 50% out of fees. Today, year to date, 2019, we're flat on the year and we're running about 230 million of assets. Okay. Um, there was a, a piece today that came out from MKM. I wasn't sure if you read it or not. Uh, it's called Cannabis Don't Smoke the Kool-Aid. And it was a, a fairly bearish piece. Uh, it, was an initi- it was an initiation from this analyst who I'm not really familiar with. And uh, there was five basic points of why he's bearish. And I sort of quickly wanted to just go through sure. those five points and just see what you thought about it. Okay. okay, so the first point was, number one, Supply and new, and these are quotes, supply and new entrants, parentheses, measured by licenses, will likely outpace consumers on most growth. existing business models. What do you think? I don't necessarily agree with that. I think the business models are designed to pivot as this occurs and to actually be more brand focused. And so the in actuality, because there is no capital going into the space, we think a lot of licenses are going to sit unused, unoccupied. The marginal cost of opening it doesn't make sense. And so the incumbents with the cheapest cost of capital actually benefit the most. I think he got that point entirely wrong. Okay. Uh, His second point was uh, building brands around commoditized raw ingredients will prove difficult in this nascent category of consumer packaged goods. What's sugar? I mean, isn't that kind of the antithesis? Look at where the most margin capture is in the supermarket, and it's often the most commoditized product that's branded the best. Uh, Again, I, I don't think he gets it. Okay. Third point. Uh, again, a quote, despite what appears to be incremental demand, cannabis prices continue to fall. This does not bode well for profitability, especially considering the top seven cultivators are already harvesting at a rate nearly equal to legal channel needs in Canada. So our view is that prices will continue to fall, and that's priced into the market to some extent. And and even when you talk to any of the big incumbents, the public MSOs, they'll tell you they're going to continue to fall. You're not going to have $4,000 a pound for mediocre weed in Massachusetts forever. Right. Um, Yeah, I mean, we think that there's a lot of supply and demand imbalance, which is part of the opportunity. And over time, we will find an equilibrium. But right now, yeah, I mean, for the most part, prices will continue to fall. Do you ever see an environment where maybe uh, like these are traded on an exchange like the way corn or wheat is? Um, I think the better analogy that we're seeing are live auctions. And so a couple of guys that we're talking to in California are trying to create the first live auction uh, similar to a commodities pit. Right. Um, 
And then, or the analogy they use actually is the tuna market in Japan, because every day it's different. You don't know what's coming in. It's less commoditized than say wheat. Right. Um, so people are, are actively talking about it for sure. And then you just saw big news this week, FDA is giving crop insurance for hemp, which hopefully is going to normalize some sort of commodity exchange. Okay. Fourth point. Um, over time, we believe flour and production for extraction becomes commoditized and profitability decreases. This is similar to other agricultural products. As yields per acre improved, profitability per acre decreased, which is sort of what we were just talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think he assumes, and, and this is a, a big issue of cannabis, not all cannabis is the same, number one. Number two is there's going to be a natural evolution of product and delivery mechanisms. And so in a lot of instances, it's a great thing that the cost to harvest is coming down. It's a great thing that the cost of cannabis itself is coming down. Anyone that uses it as an input is a beneficiary. So yeah, I mean, that, that's not a bad thing. Okay. Uh, and then the last point was, uh, it's really a two-parter. He starts with, cumulatively, the U.S. government suggests El Chapo made over $12 billion with his illicit drug trade. The top Canadian growers have cumulatively lost a collective $1.4 billion. And then he adds, rather than be wildly profitable in two years, we expect the Canadian LT LPs to roughly break even. Holding SG&A expenses flat on an absolute basis, which, we, which is extremely unlikely, Barely produces the PL leverage to reach consensus, consensus estimates. There's so many things to say about that. I mean, for starters, most of El Chapel's money came from cocaine. Second of all, the, he had no regulation, no testing, no compliance. And the reason why people are getting sick and dying from vapes is exactly that. And third of all, what you have today is a fragmented interstate, not, no interstate commerce ecosystem where every state is effectively its own country. For him, he was able to supply into the entire country under the same distribution mechanism effectively. Right. And so what you're, I guess what he says to you is when there's economies of scale, this is what you can do <laughs> at right. the end of the day. So again, I'm not sure how any of these points are actually bad and actually kind of prove the bull case that we're making. Uh, I, I, when I glanced over the notes this morning and looked at kind of what he liked, what he didn't like and, and the high level points, him and I are actually kind of at polar opposites. I mean, the names he likes the least, we like the most and vice versa. And then I, I just don't agree with most of what he came out with. Yeah. All right. So enough, enough about him. Not, not a buyer of MKM right now. Uh, I wanted to do a little bit of sort of factor fiction and just go over some of the things that I wanted to talk about. Um, so you tell me factor fiction, number one. Uh, while companies like Constellation Brands are poised to produce cannabis beverages, there's little evidence to show that people actually want to drink them. So we don't think that the market for cannabis beverages is developed enough, and we don't agree that there's not evidence in the markets that it does exist. For, for instance, one of our portfolio companies can. They can't produce enough fast enough. They are sold out for the next 50 dispensaries that they're going to supply. I personally believe wholeheartedly in the use case because it solves for a social concept. Most cannabis, you can't just sit at a bar and meet somebody on a work trip and smoke. You can't smoke in most places in America. And so our view is that 10 years from now, you're going to see a lot of cannabis beverages. So let's, let's dig into what you call like the social concept of it, right? Because to me, it's almost like uh, if you came to me and said, hey, I've got this new product, you can smoke alcohol, you can get drunk, and there's no calories, you won't gain weight. I'd be like, I'm not sure people really want that. So flip that on its head, why do people want to drink cannabis? So twofold, I, I think number one is we are accustomed at, as people to having this social concept of going to a bar and having drinks. Alcohol or cannabis, we think at some point become interchangeable. So if I say to you, I want to go meet you for a drink, we both know what that means, relatively speaking, time-wise, 
inebriation wise, we know what three drinks means. Cannabis, you can do the same thing. In Canada, they're putting a two and a half milligram limit per serving. So if you think about the average person is going to need two to five drinks, that's pretty similar to beer. And so we've already lived through this and understanding that social use concept. Number two is, to your point, there are no there, there are some calories for flavoring and different things in these beverages, but a lot less calories than an equivalency of beer. So we think that people are going to naturally migrate there. And then what's really interesting about cannabis in general is with alcohol, and we can debate this, but with alcohol, drunk is drunk. Wine, beer, vodka, we're just getting drunk. Tequila may be a little different. With cannabis, I can say we can solve almost for need states. You want to energize, you want to be partying, you want to be studying, you want to focus, you want to sleep, you want to be calm. There's more of a tweaking mechanism to cannabis that exists in alcohol. And so you're talking about comparing basically a three-dimensional universe to the two dimensions of alcohol. And so we're very excited about that. And at some point, all the alcohol incumbents will take note. Oh, take note. Okay, but like then to, to go along with the concept of, of, of it's, a, it's a social leap to bet on this, right? So where are we going to be drinking these? So right now, where you can drink, let's start with where you can drink them today. You can drink them today in California consumption lounges and Colorado consumption How lounges. How many of these are there? So the first one goes live next week in California, Lowell Farms, which can, one of our investments, is the drink provider there. So there is, I believe, 12 that are going to exist in West Hollywood. There's a few in NorCal that are going to come online. It's a very nascent market. Now- so basically, this is the equivalent of kind of like New York City cigar bars. There's like a few for now, of them. For now. Okay. However, the difference is also you can go out and buy these cans and invite your friends over. So for now, it's really, hey, come over. Let's have a few drinks. Um, same way you would say that about alcohol. Over time, we believe there is a massive health and wellness trend in America. This is less calories, no hangover, no dumb decisions. Um, you're going to migrate, or you're not migrating, you're going to adopt this new use case. Do you see uh, in the future that these products will have their own shelves like a Whole Foods? I think it's a long time before mass market C-stores are selling THC products. Um, but if you have a proliferation of dispensaries across America, I think you're very likely to walk into any dispensary in any legal adult use state at some point soon and see beverages. Okay. All right. Factor fiction number two. Uh, in states where recreational is legal, factor fiction, most people that were buying black market are now buying it legally. The statistics don't say that. You are seeing a curb in the black market, but there's still a very robust black market. And that's more of a result of enforcement than anything. You have two things that I think drive the consumer. Convenience, which is kind of where's the closest place to buy weed. Oftentimes, it's still the dealer. And then you have cost. And because you still have in most legal states a 40% tax on cannabis, oftentimes it's cheaper. Our view on the vape crisis that's kind of all over the news right now is that hopefully that gives people the incentive to go walk into a store and make sure they know they're buying a clean tested product. So the black market, because you have decriminalization in almost every adult use state, there's very little incentive by law enforcement to go in and do anything. Now you need consumer demand to shut it down and that consumer demand could come at the, at the expense of health and safety. Okay. Uh, number three, uh, factor fiction. Uh, last year, you looked at the importance of branding. Now, I put a chart in front of you, and this is uh, the market share of the like the top 
15 beers in the United States. So yeah. like number one is Bud Light. Bud yeah. Light has seven seven and a half percent, and they are number one. Seven and a half percent of all beers sold in this country are Bud Light. Is there any cannabis brands that have any sort of brand dominance like this? At this moment in time, the answer is no. Um, uh, it depends if we go category by category. So if we want to go vape, there is, there was one that really did, which was Select, which is being acquired by Curaleaf. Select had the largest market share in California, Nevada, and every state they entered, Oregon. Um, so they, in this chart, they had about 10% of the market, not much different than Bud Light. You had Select as effectively the Bud Light in early, early innings. Remember, right. California went adult use legal Jan 1, 2018. We're not even two years into this game. So you're seeing some of that. Um, you're seeing, we just made an investment in a company called Connected, Connected Alien Labs. They sell for basically an equivalent of a $4,000 a pound MSRP. So in the context of they can sell everything they make, they're there. Uh, and they're taking real share in that sort of top right quadrant of most expensive product. And then we've got another company called Raw Garden. Raw Garden is the fastest growing vape, co vape company in California. And they're really owning the value category. So they are, they're growing. They've got about 6% of the market today. We think they can get up to 10. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you're, you're starting to see these bars fill out with some of the winners. Um, but by no stretch would I tell you that everybody that's going to be a top 10 global cannabis brand is alive and well today. A lot of these haven't been born yet. Okay. Um, last one. Um, Factor fiction. Oh, wait, I had a follow-up question actually to the last one. And, and, and here, here it was, and it relates to branding. Um, because there's limited licenses, like are these companies monopolies is I, is I guess what I'm sort of asking. Do you understand what I'm asking? I, I understand what you're asking. I think, so what, going back to what the MKM analyst said about cultivation, cultivation naturally goes to kind of marginal cost, right? That's why you have so many subsidies for farmers in America. There's not great economics in agriculture in America, unless there's some crazy microclimate where you can only grow something somewhere. So in cannabis, what you have is it's not a free market. It is an oligopoly or a monopoly in a lot of states. Right. Because there is a limit to the amount of cultivation or the number of cultivators the market is not setting the equilibrium. The laws are for in a lot of instances. So why is there $4,000 a pound weed for the same exact weed theoretically? That would be 400 in California. It is a supply demand imbalance created by this artificial monopolistic oligopolistic condition. Okay. All right. That's it for factor fiction. Um, let me ask you this. Um, if you were going to start a cannabis business right now in any part, growing, dispensary, beverage, what would, what would it be? I really think brands are, are where the, the big money is going to be made. I think, you know, at the end of the day, a, the business model makes sense to own a retailer today because that's where you can push your brand. And again, you have these kind of artificial monopolistic conditions. Uh, but over time, as the price of cannabis, the input goes down, you're going to want to be selling branded products that you can then mark up and create a lot of margin. That's our view that long-term brands are where you want to be. We want to find the next Diageo. That's really what we're out there hunting for. Okay. Br now let's go sort of macro. What do you think has been the problem this year versus last year? Sure. All these stocks seem to be for sale. What's like, why do you think they're so out of favor right now? So I, I think a lot of the weakness this year is the starting point of where the Canadians ended up. You had the Canadians basically going into legalization with a hundred billion of public market cap 
off a $10 billion kind of like optimistic rec market in Canada. So a 10x prior to the first legal sale in Canada. Right. Um, too much too soon. Too, way too much too soon. So when a stock hits its all-time high, kind of in the first two years of its life, usually not a good thing. So that's set up for a weakness across the globe. And so the U.S. guys, which we're seeing actually execute on their business plans, grow, be fundamentally sound businesses, have kind of gone out with the bathwater. And so you had this year, sentiments gotten really hurt. We saw a lot of new money come into cannabis in Q3, Q4 of last year. Almost all of that money is underwater, and we're seeing a few guys just kind of throw in the towel. Uh, likewise, even though you saw a lot of conversions of kind of non-cannabis investors into cannabis investors in 2018, a year later, I would argue you're seeing a lot less. And so with the macro backdrop of in nothing really changing on a state or federal level in the U.S., most people are kind of staying on the sidelines. And in any retail-driven industry, no one wants to catch a falling knife, number one. And number two is it's a FOMO, MOMO market. And so when they start to move, you'll get people kind of make the calculus and say they want to come back in. Uh, I, I also would caveat that our focus for since legalization in Canada in October of last year has been the United States. And you have a technical dynamic that never existed in Canada, which is American investors are trying to buy stocks on a tertiary exchange in Canada. Not only are you taking FX risk and, and having to figure out how to navigate a tertiary exchange in Canada, most of the kind of retail brokers or specifically most of the institutional prime brokers won't custody these names. And so the pool of available buyers for a U.S. asset is a lot smaller than it is for a Canadian asset. And so all these things together have kind of created this market of just just drifting lower with no buyer, no, no one there to actually absorb the supply. You have tons of money made from early insiders in the U.S., so guys that got involved in 14, 2014 and 15 right. worth 30, 50 million bucks. They don't care if they're worth double that. They just want to kind of take the money off the table. And because there's so few institutions here for all the dynamics I just described, it's a lot of these stocks can't get out of their own way. Okay, and, so what what would change? Uh, a, what could cause a U.S. institution to get involved? So, meaning, I think it was Jamie Dimon yesterday was on the tape saying he wouldn't bank uh, cannabis businesses yet, but he has no problem doing so morally or ethically. Is kind of what he insinuated, right? Yeah. yeah. So what's so, gonna, what's going to cause the change? So next week we suspect the house is going to have a vote on what's called the safe act the safe act should allow for fdic insured institutions to take deposits of cannabis companies and then theoretically to process payments and allow for credit that's a huge step forward and that fundamentally improves a lot of these businesses by driving the cost of banking down allowing for credit cards which in theory is a 30 percent uptick that day um, because you can obviously most people don't have a lot of cash and as well as a huge kind of pro on the safety side, because no one's going to get held up if you're using credit cards and not cash. Now, where we are a little concerned is there's not enough language in what we understand to be what's going to hit the floor to allow for underwriting and capital markets. And so what most people want to see is the air cover that says, I can go to my LPs, the endowments, the universities, the foundations of the world and say, hey, this is kosher in the US. The US has blessed it explicitly. I don't need a legal opinion anymore to tell me I can do this. I can just go do it. And these companies can go list on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. I'm not sure we get that in the SAFE Act and most likely we don't. But I do believe we get something like that between now and the election next year. And would that look like just over overall federalization 
of it, like legal, making it legal on a federal level? I, I don't think making it legal on a federal level, but I think stopping federal enforcement and decriminalizing and descheduling is a big option. And then tucking this in in a broader criminal justice reform. I think that's the best way to do this. I think you can get a lot of votes by doing that. And I think support is pretty widespread for doing that. Okay. Let's let's drill in drill down a little bit to like some specific companies. Sure. So people all the time are talking about CBD. We see CBD products everywhere. They're in CVS. They're it's mainstream now. So if I wanted to buy a company with yep. CBD exposure, who's mm-hmm. the best one? So on the public side, we there's really three guys that are really interesting, and you're starting to see kind of more and more hype around them. Uh, most people know Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web is. A good CBD company. Um, mm-hmm. There's a company called Abacus. Abacus just did the deal with Rob Gronkowski, if you saw that. Right. And so they're more, they are the only company that actually have the FDA's blessing to make medical claims. And so they're, they're very much going after that true kind of medical use case. We like them a lot. We think it's fundamentally very cheap. And then there's a company called Plus Products, which does both THC and CBD, but just this week rolled out their nationwide CBD launch with John Legend and Casper Mattresses. So we're very excited about them because we think they're they're kind of ahead of the game uh, in terms of like doing a proper CPG launch, consumer packaged goods. And these guys have really good leadership who understand what they're doing. Okay. There's a couple of like fad stocks that I wanted to dig into. Sure, Last sure. year's fad stock was Tilray. And I feel like this year's fad stock is a company called Innovative Industrial Properties and the ticker's IIPR. Sure. What's yep. the deal with this company? So these guys were very smart to go when they went public. They were on they are on NASDAQ. And maybe just briefly describe what they do. So IIPR is a real estate investment trust that basically buys properties and then leases them back to cannabis tenants. And so I went to the roadshow a few years ago when they went public and they were touting kind of high teens cap rates, which for the last few years have very much been available. Um, And so this company has become a proxy for cannabis because it's really the only pure play cannabis company on NASDAQ. Right. And so what you have now is they're they're arguing to you that they're getting kind of 17, 20% cap rates and the dividend on the stock is like less than 1% last I checked. Yeah. Um, so there's a pretty big mismatch there. And so what we are starting to see, we're seeing them take on lower quality tenants to get these high teens or low 20 yields. Uh, which is obviously concerning in, in cannabis where oftentimes uh, the guys that are getting those yields are for a very good reason. Um, and so our view is that you know it's really difficult to justify owning this company. There's other competitors out there that are taking are happily taking lower cap rates and getting higher quality tenants. Uh, and so the market is definitely for higher quality guys moving lower. Uh, yeah, it's it's a name that uh, when they did the secondary at 125 or 130, somewhere in there, uh, we were kind of scratching our heads. Right, right. Um, okay, new IPO called Sundial, S-N-D-L. Yeah. Know it? I do know it. Uh, we did, obviously. One of the worst IPO debuts we've seen. Yeah, I mean, it was priced wrong, for sure. Um, we we That was what we said to the bankers. Um, you know, it's... It's crazy to give someone credit for 400% year-over-year growth uh, in this market um, and then price it at a rich multiple. I mean, that, that's exactly what happened. And, uh, yeah, we, we said we would be shorting the stock at, at these levels. Yeah. And um, they came at those levels. Okay. Um, 
Last year, Tilray was 300. Now I think it's like in the 20s. Um, does it interest you anywhere? No. I mean, there's. we always thought there was something off with Tilray. Um, I think you see a version of what, that. What, like the CEO? Just the whole company, I think, is how I would put it. it they, they have a very asset light model, almost too asset light. And when you saw the things that you saw around the IPO and getting the stock higher and the low flow and the promotion around it, uh, we were quite concerned, which is why we went short the stock. And then ultimately what really bothers us, I think, is looking at it, you have all these, you have 75 million shares of investors that invested in this privateer, which was the PE fund that owned Tilray, mm -hmm. who my understanding, and I'm not positive it's true, haven't been able to sell a single share. So these guys have basically watched a 90% drawdown while the CEO, I think, was either the second or third highest paid CEO in the world last year. Um, you know, I would be screaming and yelling if I was an investor. That's for sure. Right. Um, okay, so then who do you consider to be the best executive in cannabis? I think the guy who has the most thoughtful vision and has proven his ability to execute is Joe Lasardi, the CEO of Careleaf. I think Joe has a real plan. I think Joe plus Boris Jordan, the chairman, really understand what they have to do and they have access to capital to do so. At the end of the day, we really believe a huge driver right now is cost of capital and access to capital. We think Cureleaf is in their own league in that regard. And so if the thesis is I want to own someone who's around in five years, cost of capital is the driver of that. And these guys totally understand it. We really like their acquisitions. We're investors in, in Cureleaf itself, but also in the two companies they most recently acquired, Select and Grassroots. So, you know, based on our eye, we think they have a good eye. Uh, and then likewise, we happen to really think they get the model. So if you ask them, like, are you going to open dispensaries in California? Like, absolutely not. It's going to be commoditized. We're going to own the shelves. Right. And so they're thinking about every market as its own supply and demand imbalance and where can they actually maximize the margin. And they're thinking, okay, I want to own my shelf space. They have the highest percentage of SKUs of their own in their dispensaries versus any of the competitors, which is what we love to see. Use the distribution advantage to push your brands. That's exactly what they're doing. And so that's, in our view, the 800-pound gorilla in U.S. cannabis is Cureleaf. Okay. But how do I put this? The idea of being a vertically integrated cannabis company can you say either it's going to work for all of them or it's going to work for none of them? Is that true? No, it's not true. Because I think we don't know how interstate commerce is going to shake out. And so there are going to be markets based on the number of licenses where you're going to have to be vertical in some and not vertical in others. And I think because you're effectively dealing with 50 countries as 50 states, uh, because of the lack of interstate commerce, every state has its own dynamics. And Cureleaf, in my opinion, understands that the best, what to do in what states. Mm, okay. Um, paint for me what you would consider a, a doomsday scenario, or just tell me what you would need to see to sort of change your mind. On, about, about, about the, the whole thesis? About, yeah, about the whole thesis, yeah. I think you would need to see long-term health effects resulting in cannabis use. I'm not so concerned about that because, because people have been using cannabis for 10,000 years. Uh, I'm more concerned that, you know, sort of like the uh, in billions, you had the ice jay situation right. that you start seeing this vape turn into a version of that where people get very, very sick because they don't know what they're ingesting. And because you're in this kind of limbo where the federal government can't regulate an illegal industry, uh, sentiment just totally takes a nosedive. 
our hope is that the government says, oh, we really should regulate this so this doesn't happen. And that's a positive spin. Uh, I do believe that the demand is there. We see that in legal markets. So I'm not worried about cannabis not being a thing. I think definitively cannabis is a thing. Uh, I think really at the end of the day, what would concern me the most is a health and safety issue. Uh, and, you know, we still feel the vape crisis is confined to illegal products. Um, but if that for some reason deviated into legal products, of course, we'd be very concerned. Okay. Um, because of the limited scale of the available companies to invest in, mm -hmm. just kind of break down what the, like, the structure of your investments is, long, short, private. Sure. So... Our view is that, as we talked about, the Canadian investment opportunity today is not that interesting. We think most of the market was sucked out. Uh, and so we're really focused on the U.S. And in the public markets today, the bulk of the good, in our view, the good investment opportunities are the multi-state operators. They're the biggest, they're the most well-capitalized, they're doing the most. And all of them are sort of trading at, you know, it's crazy to say all of them, but most of them are trading at very attractive valuations on a go-forward basis. And what is that? What is the appropriate multiple, do you think, for these companies? So we definitely think the markets moved on the public side from a revenue multiple to an EBITDA multiple to reflect the margin profile. And so our view is that you can pick up any of our biggest positions for sort of single digits or low teens 2020 EBITDA. That is extremely attractive. That's below the market multiple. Uh, and we think this industry that's growing 100% year over year with much greater prospects in the broader market right now should obviously get a premium to the market multiple, if not a significant premium. And so we really like the setup from here on the publicly traded multi-state operators. There's not a ton of branded opportunities that are public. Uh, we like a couple of them. Um, we we like a couple ancillary plays, but again, we don't really feel that that, that is that inefficient. And at the end of the day, we're looking for inefficiencies. And then we really like, on the private side, the brands. We feel that the brands, the best brands in America right now are private. And that's where, as we talked about, I think the real play is, is on the consumer package goods side. Okay. Two more and I'll get you out of here. Um, last year, we saw a few partnership announcements. We saw Constellation and uh, Canopy, mm -hmm. and then we saw Altria and then Kronos. And then it stopped, essentially. We haven't seen, people thought there was going to be sort of a flood of partnerships where everyone was going to you know, snag a, a beverage partner. It hasn't happened. Do you think it's going to happen? I definitely think it's going to happen. I think the timing is a little more in flux. I think the structure and the legality needs to be solved in the United States. And then ultimately, I think most of these big tobacco and alcohol companies want to acquire a U.S. asset because the U.S. is... 10 times the size of Canada. I think the California market alone is multiples of Canada. And so our view is that because you've seen now what the industry perceives as a slip by constellation into Canopy, and then you obviously saw the CEO of Canopy get fired and people kind of harp on the acreage deal, I think you're seeing the fact that a lot of these guys are sitting there watching and they'd rather pay up at a later date than take this risk this early. And so what would have been more momentous if you had this robust Canadian opportunity, um, maybe encourage other people to get off the sideline, doesn't appear to be the case. And likewise, because the Canadian companies can't come into the U.S. and make legal investments, or the alcohol and tobacco companies obviously can't do it directly in the U.S. today, uh, we're seeing kind of a, a waiting period. I mean, we still see a lot of alcohol and tobacco players at conferences and sniffing around the industry, getting up to speed. But I think at this point... 
They'd rather see more clarity on the federal level and then more kind of distance between the winners and the losers than exists today. Okay. And I'll get you out on this one. Um, last year, I asked you, you know, give me your favorite name that no one's heard of. You told me Charlotte's Web. This year, so if I was sitting at home and I just wanted to, you know, I want to take a stand or, or, you know, take a flyer on one or two names in sure. the space to hitch my wagon to, if I'm uninformed, what would those one or two names be? I think the safest way to think about this and actually what I think may have the most upside is you look at it again, who's got the best management teams and it, the easiest access to capital and the cheapest cost of capital. And in our view, two players have really emerged there. It's Leaf and Green Thumb Industries, GTI. Mm-hmm. We think those guys, we're not worried about them running out of capital. We're not really about them making frivolous acquisitions. We believe that they have good heads on their shoulders, great management teams, a real vision, a five to 10 year plan. And at the end of the day, if you're going to own a cannabis asset today that's around in five years, I think you're going to do very well. And I'm willing to say both of them are around in five years or acquired by somebody. Okay. Thanks, Sean. Thank you.